Hi, this is Josh, and you're listening to The Invitation. This episode is the first in what we are hoping will be a long-term collaboration between The Invitation and the Dominican Center, a ministry of the Dominican Sisters of Grand Rapids. In January of 2019, author, teacher, spiritual director, and retreat leader, Ruth Haley Barton, met with me and a small group of people for an evening of spiritual conversation and prayer practice. That jar of river water that had sat still long enough so that the sediment could settle and the water could become clear, that was a vision that called to me. I'd been raised in a very conservative Christian environment, and the words of Scripture at that point were so hackneyed and overused in my life that none of the words from Scripture were resonating with me like those words did. And I was willing at that point to give up anything and everything to get that. And that's a really good place for us to come to when we're willing to give up anything and everything to pursue God on God's terms for us. You're listening to part one of two episodes that we will be sharing with you from our time with Ruth. Here in part one, we cover many topics. The desire and desperation that leads us into the deeper waters of faith. Ruth and I discuss the failure of words and prayer. The importance of self-knowledge. Our willingness to give up everything and to surrender to God. We consider the vocabulary of contemplative prayer, its weaknesses and strengths. We cover interfaith conversations how retaining our core convictions frees us to lovingly welcome our neighbors. Ruth discusses the relationship between spiritual direction and psychology, and she shares a bit about her time with the wonderful Gerald May and other instructors at the Shalem Institute for Spiritual Formation. Ruth describes her journey into spiritual direction and spiritual formation from a faith that previously failed to introduce her to transformation. She offers us her definition of spiritual direction, what it is and what form it has taken for her ministry, the Transforming Center in Wheaton, Illinois. Part 2 of our time with Ruth, the next episode we will offer you soon. That episode contains the bulk of the question and answer portion of our time together. Here at the beginning of this episode, I offer a thorough introduction to what we are up to with the Invitation and Dominican Center collaboration. I then invite Ruth to lead us in a prayer practice, and the remaining bulk of the episode is my conversation with Ruth, where we continue to return to the question of translation. How can we be faithful to translate the deeper, transformative vocabulary of the Christian faith to make it available and accessible? My prayer and hope for you in listening to this is that time with Ruth Haley Barton will be an experience of the deep of God calling out to the depths inside of you, that you would know the invitation of the Holy Spirit calling you to the next step of engaging God's love and friendship. Amen.
Hello, hello. I'm going to do this since we've got a nice little intimate group. I'm being recording engineer at the same time as spiritual director, <laughs> which I think are very similar. Uh, honestly, listening is at the core of both. I can talk. We could just talk about that tonight instead of. But we've got a guest here. Um, so I did my uh, training in spiritual direction here with Sister Carm and Sister Diane Zerfus. Uh, and uh, my background is uh, campus ministries at Hope College. Mm. So the little little backstory is yeah. that I believe your daughter. I have two Hope, daughters that went to Hope. That went to Hope. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I was at Hope College from 2006 to 2013. Mm as the Minister of Music and Art. Oh, is that right? And I met you uh, on the way over to chapel when you spoke at chapel once. And um, the joy is this work of translation. And I was just mentioning that to Ruth. People come from different tribes, different traditions, and we all show up and we're trying to figure out how to integrate was a word that Sister Carm taught me. I knew that word before, but the way that we use it here how to integrate. I, I, when I first started in my spiritual direction training, my theological alert system, I'm a Wheaton College graduate. I went to Regent College in British Columbia. I'm an adjunct prof at the college in mm-hmm. theology. Alert, alert, what's happening theologically? I had talked to a friend, I don't know if you know Evan Howard, an author, mm-hmm. practitioner, yeah. a wonderful man, lives in Western Colorado. In a, in a semi-hermetical uh, lifestyle, he, he dug a, a hole out of the side of a hill to create his prayer cell. And mm-hmm. I just happened to get to know Evan, and uh, I said, Evan, I don't know what's going on. He said, spiritual direction, hmm, it's a kind of rearranging of the furniture. Mm-hmm. That was so helpful for me to realize. When you come here to be introduced to contemplation, to understand mysticism as a reality that comes back to ordinary life and practice. All the theological training that I'd had, it was just I need to reposition these things. And I understand you as you came and spoke at Hope College that time. It's like, she is my learning partner. <laughs> She's trying to translate too. <laughs> She's translating as well. So I'm so happy yeah. to have you here. It's, uh, this is our first of a new series that we're hoping where we'll bring in some practitioners, some leaders, some authors from around the country to do these kinds of conversations. So if you have ideas of people that are inspiring you, we'd love to create a list and pray about it and see what happens. Um, So it's a really fitting, and I actually feel safer to do this with a more intimate group, so I think this is perfect for tonight. So one of the ways that I do the podcast is... uh, to keep reframing that there's a lot of people, again, if you can understand this work of translation, a lot of people talking about the ideas of God. There's a lot of books with information. And if I'm going to do a podcast and put that out there, I might as well attend to the practice of the presence of God. So most of my podcast is guided prayers and meditations with every once in a while a conversation like this. Mm-hmm so that it's a holy, sacred conversation that then might stir people up to go back to practice. But while we have some extra time tonight, I thought maybe we'd start with practice. Ruth, if you would be kind to, to lead us in a 
guided prayer. Okay. Uh, do you have? Do you care how long it is? No, no, okay. not at all. Um, I'm going to need a better chair to do this. Could I have one of sure. those? Yeah. To be. get your back straight, to do what I want to sure. do, sure. I'm yeah. going to need to be able to sit up straighter. <sighs> well, I don't know what it took for you all to get here, but uh, I had a bit of a scary drive, so I think it'd be good for us just to release the days that we've had and maybe any uh, slipping and sliding on the roads that concerned us and maybe just... Um, enter into a greater awareness of the God who's always with us. So I think uh, in my work, I really like to integrate the body as well uh, as the mind and the soul and the spirit. So I'm going to encourage you to, first of all, let's get into that good sitting position where feet flat on the floor, back straight, because it's a position not only of health and comfort for the body, but it's also a position of alertness. And you can feel when you straighten up your back that you are more alert, um, not so comfortable that you're falling asleep, but you're saying with your whole body, God, I'm here, I'm open, I'm receptive. I'm saying with my whole body that I'm willing to receive from you. So this is, a, I think, a beautiful prayer posture. And then I enjoy opening my hands on my lap as a signal that I am releasing cares and concerns, the things that I'm clinging to and grasping at. And I'm open to receiving whatever God has to give me in this moment. And when I open my hands, I'm actually saying with my body the truth of Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. The word there is Rapha, and it really is literally translated to let go of your grip. So when I open my hands, I'm letting go of my grip of the things that I usually cling to and grasp at, um, letting go of my grip so that I can receive. We can't receive if our hands are full and clenched and tight. And then it can also be really good to pay attention to your breathing as we sit in this posture. And it's a beautiful thing to consider the fact that breathing is a very Christian thing to do. Hmm. It's not Buddhist, it's not New Age. We breathe because God gives us our breath. Not only did he give the first man and the first woman their breath, but he gives us our breath in each and every moment of our lives and in this moment of our lives. And so in these meditative moments, to actually remember that God is giving us our breath. In other words, God is giving us our life right here, right now. And with our breath, he's saying, I want you to be alive. I want you to be alive in my presence. Live. So to receive our breath and to pay attention to our breath as a gift from God is a very Christian thing to do. Let's not let, let's not let anyone else have what we can claim as our own as human beings and people of faith. So take at least three really good deep breaths. Breathe all the way down to the bottom of your diaphragm. And then let it go. Breathe in again. Breathe in the spirit of God. And as you let go, let go of cares and concerns and clinging and grasping all the ways we identify ourselves and try to prove ourselves. 
and just be a creature in the presence of your creator. One more time, breathe in. Breathe out. When you're paying attention to your breath, it's hard to think about anything else, which is exactly what we're after. And then let's just sit quietly for a moment in God's presence, open and receptive, allowing God to be the one to initiate with us rather than us always being the ones to come in with ideas. And maybe there's a prayer, a word or a phrase that comes to the surface of your consciousness, a word that expresses your deepest spiritual desire these days. A word that captures your prayer. And that word or that phrase can help us to enter into these moments of quiet and they can also bring us back to our intention to be present to God when distractions come and want to pull our attention away. We'll see if that word or that phrase comes to you just for this evening. And let that word become more than just a word, but let it become a symbol of your desire and intent to be present to the one who is always present with us. So the word itself is not so terribly important. It's what it symbolizes, what it stands for for you as a way of being present, as a way of welcoming the presence of God. Keep breathing. Don't forget to keep breathing. And as we settle in and let go in order to receive, I'm just going to invite you to do one simple thing in the quiet tonight. And that is to say the truest thing you know how to say to God right now. Here's a prayer poem that I love that, written by Ted Loder. He says, Holy One, there is something I wanted to tell you. But there have been errands to run, bills to pay, arrangements to make, meetings to attend, washing to do. 
And I forget what I wanted to say to you. And I forget how to do much of anything. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. What is that true thing? Holy One, there is something I wanted to tell you. Holy One, perhaps you've already heard what I wanted to tell you. What I wanted to ask in my blundering way is, don't give up on me. Don't forget about me. But laugh with me and try again with me. And I will with you too. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So the way I do these conversations um, is I have a set of, of questions mm -hmm. that I, we don't have to get to them all. Mm -hmm. We'll see how the Spirit leads. And I do invite you at some point to listen if you do want to jot down notes. We started listening to the Spirit. We're here together. For those of you that, does anybody practice group spiritual direction? So the joy is, even though there might be two people in the center having one conversation, we are interacting with everyone. It's not just about what the Spirit is doing here. So we will spend some time discussing some of these questions and see where the Spirit leads that. And then at some point, We'll turn it out to see if there's things stirring in you that you'd like to add. Mm -hmm. Either it's thoughts to add to this conversation, what the Spirit's teaching you, or if it's questions. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be just questions for us. If anybody, this is a community practice with our friend. So, uh, and one of the other things I should also add, um, and, and if anyone here wants to chime in and help me, I'm relatively new to Dominican Center, and there's a, a, a 
core of people that aren't able to be in here right now because they're in a, a visioning circle. Mm-hmm. We've had a 25th year anniversary for the Dominican Center out of Marywood. It's a, an outreach, a, a way to interact with the community through the spirituality resources of Dominican Center. And what I'm learning more and more is that the Dominican charism, the calling of the Dominican nuns, is very much apostolic, wanting to go out into the community. So this community of sisters uh, chose in their vocation to leave their habits, mm. and some of them chose not to keep their religious names, um, and, and, and they're out in the community. So what that looks like in some ways is some interfaith dialogues, mm-hmm. and, and it's very active, and there's people that are trained from different faiths here. And um, I practice spiritual direction. The core of my nonprofit is a practice of direction in a prison in Muskegon, and uh, it's turned out to be interfaith. And I start, usually our group practices by saying, I am more in love and passionate about the person of Jesus than most of you could understand. (laughs) And I look over at Jack. Jack is a a former bike Mm -hmm. uh, gang member who uh, cooked meth and sold meth. And he is now the most Jesus-y guy in the prison that I see. I've been there for four years. And I'll look over at Jack and I'll say, I'm more Jesus-y than you guys. And he'll smile. And then I'll look over at Latorius who is, they call him Muslim in, in the group. And when he converted to Islam, mm-hmm. he uh, chose Isa, Jesus, mm-hmm. as his prophet that he'd studied. And Latorius, and I'll say, I'll be me. And I'll look at him and I say, you be you. And then he usually pounds his chest, his big smile. And I'm learning. This is a big part of what I'm, I'm hoping this. I want to be me. But also, especially now that we're partnering with Dominican Center in this, it's not just my nonprofit. So that's another thing. Mm-hmm. There might be some people here. They're from other, other backgrounds, and we welcome you. So when we think about your journey, can you tell us a little, little bit about yourself, how you got into spiritual direction? When, when did contemplation, this slowing things down mm-hmm. and listening, where did that happen? What inspired you to get into this? Well, um, it happened in my early 30s. Um, I'm a pastor's kid, just so that you know that. And, and, and I say that because it shaped... Me in, in many ways, and um, so I never had any other ideas except to be involved in religious communities and particularly um, in church because that's the, the world that I knew very well. And so um, by the time I reached my early 30s, I had already been in vocational Christian ministry for 10 years mm. and had three children at that time, three before 30 is what I say, mm. um, and I was on staff at a church that I loved. and. I had grown up in the church and um, listened to all sorts of great preaching and Bible study and all that sort of thing, but I was beginning to recognize certain things inside that were distressing and disturbing to me, Mm. things like um, emotions that I couldn't always, I could sometimes manage but couldn't fully control, so Mm. a flash of anger or a deep well of sadness or tears that spring up, and, and I would realize that there was unresolved emotion under there, even though I was a person who was already in public vocational Christian work, um, I was noticing that there was a performance-oriented drivenness that was a part of my makeup, and I didn't know how to name it that way at that point, but I knew that I wasn't living well in my body. I knew that the people around me that I loved the most didn't feel like they were getting the best of me. I knew that my schedule was out of control. Um, 
all sorts of things that were just disturbing. Mm -hmm. um, not knowing how to name the performance-oriented drivenness, but knowing that something was driving me and that there wasn't the peace that passes understanding at the core of my life. It was this drivenness that was really at the core of my life. Mm -hmm. um, I also was becoming aware of the deeper questions and especially questions that were different or challenging or maybe even threatening to the milieu that I was in. And so because I was a person who was already in um, a leadership role in church, there was no place for me to go to ask those questions about theology and praxis, which I needed to ask, but as a person who already had a vocation and who was being paid to believe certain things and do certain things publicly, I, I couldn't raise those questions in the ministry context that I was in. Um, so I thought at the time that maybe these were psychological issues that could be mm. fixed that way. But there was someone in my life who knew about spiritual direction. I didn't know about it then. This was 20 years ago. I did not know what spiritual direction was. So I went, uh, she recommended someone to me that I could go meet with to talk about these things. And I really, there was a sense of desperation about it. I talk about the fact that desire and desperation are the twin engines that sort of lift the aircraft off the runway and get us going. And so there was desire for a different way of life, as well as a sort of desperation, like if I don't figure this stuff out, I might just, you know, die early. Um, or I might have huge regrets in my life if I don't stop and have a way of paying attention. And so I went to this person because she was a psychologist, and we did some of that kind of work. And I, I am so much into that word integration, mm -hmm. psychology, spirituality, life in the body, um, all of that together in a human person is what I'm very passionate about. So um, we did some psychological work, and that was indeed extremely helpful. Um, but then there was this point where she stopped the psychological conversations that we were having, and she said, you know, Ruth, I think that some of the questions that you have in your life really are questions that you need to take up with God. These questions need to be dealt with in your relationship with God. And in fact, she went further than that, and she said, if you don't take up these questions in your relationship with God, your relationship with God is going to just stall. Mm -hmm. It's going to atrophy. Yeah, you won't go farther. And so I was like, well, wow, because um, I was feeling kind of guilty about the questions that I was asking and the disconnects that I was seeing between um, the desires that I had and what I saw my religious traditions offering me. Mm -hmm. um, that was a hard thing to talk about and acknowledge. So um, I said, well, good. That sounds good. I trusted her, and I said, let's do that. She said, do you mind if we shift the focus of our conversations to be more about your relationship with God and taking these questions up in that relationship? And I said, that sounds good. Let's do that. And so then I thought, okay, well, great. Then she's going to just fix me up spiritually, you know. Now, rather than psychologically, she's going to now fix me up spiritually, and I'll get back out there and I'll over, I'll overachieve like I always have. Um, but lo and behold, she let me talk. She was a very gifted spiritual director, and she let me talk just long enough for me to realize that the answers were not going to come in the words. Mm. And, of course, I'm a word person. I always have been. Mm -hmm. So it was really frightening to come to the end of words and to come to the end of what we could do with words. Mm -hmm. But her timing was impeccable because I'd run out of my words and mm -hmm. still hadn't come up with any answers. And she said, Ruth, you're like a jar of river water all shaken up. And what you need is to sit still long enough for the sediment to settle and the water to become clear. And that was probably the most profound spiritual moment in my life outside of my conversion experience when I was a child. Um, and it was powerful for two reasons, uh, reasons that Richard Rohr speaks of when he says a good journey begins with knowing where you are and being willing to go someplace else. Mm. Um, because that moment was a moment like that for me. First of all, I saw where I was 
you know, I saw that I was that jar of river water all shaken up. And so, of course, any good spiritual journey begins with some sort of self-knowledge and self-revelation. And so that was just the true truth of it. And I would have liked to have said to her, but now, wait a second, I'm also this and I'm also that and I've achieved this and I've got that going on. But those were peripheral. Those were superficial. They weren't the kind of truth that she was offering to me. You're like a jar of river water all shaken up. Um, and I knew it was true. And I couldn't squirm out of it because I had let her see me so fully that there was no arguing with her about that. But there was also contained within that moment the vision of what I could be. Um, that jar of river water that had sat still long enough so that the sediment could settle and the water could become clear. That was a vision that called to me. I'd been raised in a very conservative Christian environment, and the words of Scripture at that point were so hackneyed and overused in my life that none of the words from Scripture were resonating with me like those words did, that vision of a jar of river water that had sat still long enough so that the sediment could settle and the water could become clear. I thought, oh, that's it. That's what I want. So there was the vision. And I was willing at that point to give up anything and everything to get that. And mm -hmm. that's a really good place for us to come to when we're willing to give up anything and everything uh, to pursue God's, to pursue God on God's terms for us. Mm -hmm. And at that point, everything else I was doing became relativized and not nearly as important as the spiritual work that mm -hmm. we were now in, in the middle of in this spiritual mm -hmm. direction relationship. And that was really the beginning. And talk about translation. I, I like what you're articulating about translation because my spiritual director was also brilliant in the way that she talked to me as yeah. a conservative Christian mm -hmm. um, who would have been highly threatened if she had come at me in some other ways. Mm -hmm. So she didn't use some of the language that might have been more threatening for me. Um, the language of solitude and silence were words that I could resonate with from Scripture. Jesus going to a solitary place, um, the, the words of the Psalms that talk about stillness or um, in silence, my soul waits for you and you alone, O oh God. I could find the idea of solitude and silence in Scripture, and that was helpful to me. Mm. Um, if she hadn't been wise with her choice of words, I might have run out the door with my hair on fire, mm. you know. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm eternally grateful to her for easing me in by using words that I could receive. And so I think that your word translation is really mm -hmm. important. And mm -hmm. I, I have seen that as being a part of what my calling has been mm -hmm. uh, still within a Protestant tradition but but open and gathering from other traditions as well, but mm -hmm. bring and bringing it into my tradition in ways that mm -hmm. people can receive until they're ready to go further. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like a very worthy call. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. it's a sometimes you're on a razor thin edge mm -hmm. with the language, mm -hmm. um, and you're always discerning what's the right moment to introduce another piece of language, or to introduce another idea that might feel like it goes against something that we hold dear, but in actuality, underneath, it doesn't. It's actually very mm -hmm. consistent and congruent with what the scriptures describe. Mm -hmm. um, so I love the word contemplative, sure. but I never use it. Sure, okay. Um, not, I mean, I might start, you know, I might start using it a little bit more now, but at the time, this was 20 yeah. years ago, yeah. nobody would have accepted that word. <clears throat> right. But you could go to scripture and talk about Elijah and the fact that Elijah went into the wilderness and spent 40 days in solitude and silence. You could talk about Paul's three days sitting blind, you know, waiting for Ananias to come. Um, you could talk about Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. You could talk about Moses on the mountain, you know, um, and you could, you could use the words of solitary place and the words of silence, and um, those who are the least little bit open could go with you with those words. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the word contemplative, for whatever reason, has been very threatening in the Protestant environment, and I don't, I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it's so threatening, but um, I love the word myself, and I love what it means and what it stands for, and I recognize that people often put me in that category, which is fine with me, except if it becomes a barrier yeah. to being able to talk about these things that are so rich. And, and transformative and, and deeply a part of our um, Protestant heritage as, as, and, and the Catholic tradition and beyond, you know. Mm. So um, I, I, I've been, um, it's been a beautiful thing to know that there are other traditions that do better with silence than, than mm. Protestants do. Mm. So the Buddhist tradition does do much better with practices of silence and solitude, a much mm -hmm. better grasp of what it is and what it accomplishes in the human soul. Mm -hmm. um, so um, you just have to, you have to know your audience and you have mm -hmm. to communicate in ways that are loving towards your audience because then they can go with you step mm -hmm. by step, just like I had to do. Mm -hmm. So here you're saying that the container of your faith where you're raised mm -hmm. and then you en entered into leadership in mm -hmm. was falling apart, that it was cracking, it was not sustainable. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, well, let me even put a finer point on it. It wasn't transforming me, uh, and that was the scariest thing at the time okay. was to realize that I had been a, I was I had a conversion experience when I was four years old. Mm. Um, my dad went to a conservative seminary, and he would practice his sermons on us. My dad, I mentioned that my dad's a pastor, so I was four, and he would between <laughs> four and six he'd be practicing his sermons on us for family devotions. And so one night he, he preached a particularly effective sermon on heaven and hell. And as a four-year-old, I knew what side <laughs> of the equation I wanted to be on. And so that's when I accepted Christ in a very simple way. Um, so, you know, the journey goes all the way back there. But how sobering to have been raised in the home of a pastor, to have had a conversion experience at four years old, to have committed my life in a more conscious way to the Lord when I was in junior high, to have gone to Bible college, to have gone to Christian college. I went to Wheaton, too. Did you know that? No. Yes, we have that in common. Yep. Um, and then to have been to seminary and then to have listened, you know, to have, you know, listened to good preaching and all that, read all the self-help books. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't changing. I was still the basically selfish person I'd always been, you know. Mm. And I still had all this unresolved stuff inside. And I was still driven. And even though I could spiritualize a lot of things, mm. I knew I wasn't changing in the deepest and most fundamental ways. And... That is a scary truth when you're up in front trying to tell other people about what's possible for them, yep. and you know that that's not what's happening inside you. So um, it's not only that it wasn't sustainable, it's that it wasn't transformative, and mm -hmm. I wanted transformation. I wanted to change. Were you using to... that language at that point? It was point? change. Like, I really the, the word change. was change. I, I wanted to change. I could tell that there were places in me that were stuck, mm -hmm. and and... There was emptiness on the inside, okay. um, and and even the drivenness. You know, eventually recognizing that the drivenness had to do with the activism of the Protestant tradition. Mm -hmm. That we're always trying to get stuff done, and that's how we value ourselves. And and I think one of the attractive things about silence was to learn to be in the presence of God, mm -hmm. letting God love me beyond achievement, and to let that become the bedrock of my identity, rather than the achievement-oriented drivenness that had been mm -hmm. built into me just mm -hmm. by virtue of. The tradition in which I've been raised. I mean, the Catholics are so much better, I think, in many historically, cases. Historically, at least. Historically, <laughs> yes. I have a story to say about that. Um, but better at the at a more sacramental approach to life, where things are beautiful and lovely mm -hmm. and worthy because mm -hmm. of the sacredness mm -hmm. of the created being of it of mm -hmm. it all. Um, now, I will say, we we in the Transforming Center, we have all our retreats in Catholic retreat centers, and 
I remember one day one of the one of the brothers came in as we were cleaning up and he had noticed that we had had a silent lunch that day with 70 people. <laughs> and he goes, you guys are better at our stuff than we are. We haven't had a silent lunch in 25 years. <laughs> I think we've arrived somewhere. Yeah. I think we just arrived somewhere. Nice. You know, so yes, I like your... It feels your, good as a Protestant. Yeah, your word historical was, was correct. Silence. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, that we can't assume anything always. And I realize that, yeah. that, that there are different streams within the Catholic Church, different yeah. orders that stand for different things and have different charisms, as mm-hmm. you said so well. And um, so some are more activistic than others, so some practice certain parts of the heritage better than others mm-hmm. do. And silence and solitude is deeply a part mm-hmm. of the historic Catholic uh, tradition. It's something yeah. they've incorporated much better than Protestants, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I think that's been the difficulty I've had is, as a worship leader mm-hmm. for my adult life, trying to introduce people. We were put on the stage with guitars to help people enter into the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And the music's done, we're done. Mm-hmm. And uh, what other faculties do we have to entertain a loving gaze, a long loving gaze to sit? What other paradigms do we have other than Josh Banner up there again with a guitar? Let's do it again. Oh, so wait a minute. And so, so then you're saying that you, you knew at that point that something was missing in this gospel, this, this mm-hmm. faith that wasn't yeah. changing you. And so you ended up with this therapist who had a, a good toolkit to go to direction as yeah. well. Yeah. And then um, now that I look back on it, I realize that she was transitioning uh, from her work purely uh-huh. as a psychologist uh-huh. to a, a deeper calling, a, de- a calling into spiritual direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to observe that because there are many psychologists these days who are doing that very same yeah. thing, who realize the limits. Yeah. Um, but I always want to bang the drum and say, "Don't give it all up. Don't give it all yeah. up," because. Right. The work that we did around the psychological issues was highly valuable, and I would have hated not to receive that. I wouldn't be the person I am if I hadn't received yeah. it. So I don't. I hope we don't. I hope every psychologist doesn't throw the whole thing out and just become a spiritual director sure. because sure. that integration that they've done in their own lives is so important. So for me, the fact that I had that that my you know entrance into this deeper journey came through psychological work and spiritual direction mm-hmm. with a really gifted director. Um, has caused me to have a passion for that kind of integration and everything I've done since. So when I chose t- my own train- training as a spiritual director, mm-hmm. I chose the Shalem Institute because Jerry May was one of the teachers, and yeah. I wanted that, and I wanted the integration. So we had Rosemary Doherty, who was a Catholic sister. Um, we had Jerry May, who was you know the the MD psychiatrist, and we had Tilden Edwards, who was the Anglican priest, and those three were my teachers, um, and. Jerry May was dying at the time, so mm. we were the last cohort that he taught The Dark Night of the Soul to before that book came oh out. My so I, I get chills even saying that, that mm-hmm. I that by whatever of God's grace, mm-hmm. I ended up in that mm-hmm. situation. Um, but that integration was something I sought out as part of my spiritual direction training, and it's something that's um, a really important thread and element in all that we do in the Transforming Center. And I think that we ignore psychological health and wholeness and healing to our own peril. You can't slap a spiritual answer on a psychological issue. Mm. You just can't. It will not work. It won't hold. It will not do what needs to be done. Mm. And, of course, the opposite is also true, that you can't slap a a psychological answer onto a spiritual problem. And that's why I'm so grateful for my own spiritual director, because she knew at one point, this is no longer about psychology. Ruth is in the middle of a huge transition in her spiritual Mm. life. 
and this must now be dealt with as a spiritual issue. I mean, isn't that, yeah. that's what we need. That's what we have to have in good spiritual direction. And the difficulty between pastoral counseling, mm -hmm. therapy, and a and spiritual, spiritual direction, direction. Mm -hmm. the difficulty is that when we look at therapy, there's a myriad schools of where, where they were trained, who is inspiring them. So when you mm -hmm. say, how do you integrate this holistic idea of therapy mm -hmm. and value that, then there's also a lot of work for anyone who's interested in paying attention to this, to knowing what between you know, Freud and Jung, just these two sides, there's so much to cover. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. I'm in a doctoral program at Fuller in spiritual direction, mm -hmm. and that's one of the things we're covering is trying to understand that. And so I just want to put that on the table for people that are paying attention. When, when we come to a director, or if we're, there's practicing directors here, when we discern that, and that's really powerful that, right. that you had someone that was that well-trained that could go, that's psychological, the, that's yes. spiritual. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then throughout, then I, I had her for like 13 years. Mm. And so then after that, in our relationship, we would, when she, we were doing basically spiritual direction, but when we were doing psychological work, she would actually tell me. Mm -hmm. go, she would say, now we're going to switch to do some psychological work here. Mm -hmm. And that was helpful to me too, that mm -hmm. she would actually highlight it for me and say, now we're going to switch and do a little bit of psych, you know, psycho, mm -hmm. psychological work here. Mm -hmm. um, it was just nice to know which part of myself we were dealing with. <laughs> so you, you found this help. At what point did you discern, this is my thing? This oh, is, I'm going to yes. go get trained in That's this. That's such and, a great question. And then you start wondering about mm -hmm. writing books and facilitating retreats. How did that come around? Yeah. Well, there was no plan for this, let me just tell you. Um, at the time, I was much more comfortable I would have been more comfortable speaking to a large group of people than doing spiritual direction. And the reason for that is because my own journey in spiritual direction took me to such risky places. Um, I actually dropped out of church mm. for, for a couple of years. Mm. And as a pastor's kid, a person who had been on staff, and that was my vocation, to drop out of church in order to be fully present to God and also to unravel the threads of my life. To, to separate out my dad from God, from the church. I mean, yeah. there was no way for me to do that while staying actively in the church. But I didn't know anybody who'd ever done that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know any good Christian who had ever dropped out of church. Um, and in my family, no one understood it. And I had, you know, I was in very conservative circles, and so no one around me understood it. The only person who understood what I was doing was my spiritual director. Mm -hmm. And my husband, thankfully, was very open to whatever God was doing in my life. So... Um, when I think back on that and how risky it was, mm. I quit my staff job that I had, my staff role at the church, dropped out. It was so risky that the idea of being in that risky place with other people really scared me mm. um, because my spiritual director saw it and supported me, and she was an important person in that journey. And I didn't feel at all ready to be with people in the places where they would make such risky decisions about their lives that would affect their lives and others. I just didn't want to be responsible. And I know this. I know the spiritual director is not responsible. I know the locus <laughs> of discernment is always with the directee. I know all that. I'm, a, I'm very well trained in that. Um, I had good teachers about that. But at the same time, a spiritual director still has a lot of influence, no matter mm -hmm. how careful they are yeah, with those things. It's good to know. So, so the idea of being in that intimate, risky place with people as they were making risky choices scared me so badly, I just didn't want to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, 
so I put off thinking about that for a long, long time. But then eventually years into it, and that's why I'm a little concerned sometimes by how quickly people right now are signing up for their direction programs and how unprepared they really are. And, and, and I'm finding that many direction programs are not being very discerning in mm-hmm. how they're accepting people. Just mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that. I don't know if you care if I'm uncensored here, but I'm going to tell you. Go for it. I'm going to say that, that yeah. I am very concerned <clears throat> yeah. that um, people have a little bit of a spiritual experience, and then they say, I want to be a spiritual director. I'm like, you're not ready on any level, yeah. and you shouldn't be accepted by any reputable program. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that's another topic. Um, but I put that off for a long time, and... Finally, and I'll never forget this session with the director, I broached it. I said, I think I might be sensing a call to this. And um, I was so frightened by what I was saying. You know how when you say something, it makes it more real? So I'd never said it. And so Mm. saying it made it more real, and it scared me so badly that I I literally slipped out of my chair and fell out onto the floor after I said it. You know, it just scared me so badly. And... um, she got on the floor with me. Spiritual director got on the floor with me and just put her arms around me and rocked me, literally rocked me and said, I've seen this for years. I've seen this for years. And so, so much was happening in that moment. Um, Number one, I was saying something I hadn't said out loud and she knew how to be present with me. But number two, I saw this great character quality in a good spiritual director and that was her restraint. The fact that even though she had seen it Mm -hmm. for a long time, she never said it to me. She waited until God brought it to me, and then she was able to be with me in an affirming way. So I've never forgotten that moment, and it's been one of the things that has shaped my life as a spiritual director uh, deeply is the importance of restraint. And, um, you know, spiritual directors, they see a lot more than they can ever say um, and ever should say. I mean, really, some of the things they see should should be revealed by God to the person that they say it, and that's what you're holding space for. So... Um, those experiences really shaped my own practice of spiritual direction and what I even believe it's all about. And so when I teach about spiritual direction and what to look for, that's always the question, what do I look for in a spiritual director? I always list the character quality of restraint and tell that story with it, that there was something she saw for three years and didn't say it. Hmm. That's wonderful, isn't it? She respected God's work Hmm. in my life. So I want to ask two questions that you might be able to answer is, mm-hmm. one, how then did you learn to define spiritual direction? Mm-hmm. Like if somebody stops you, maybe you've got a, a reader who finds you at Calvin mm-hmm. tomorrow, and I see you on the back, there's a blurb of mm-hmm. your spiritual direction. I've heard of that. What is that? Mm-hmm. What would you say? And then maybe in that answer, also tell us a little bit about what the Transforming Center is, Do you, and if you train directors mm-hmm. there and what yeah. that looks like. Yeah, well... Um, there are so many wonderful definitions of spiritual direction. I talk about a spiritual director as being someone who's more well-versed in the ways of the soul than we are, um, than the person who's coming for direction, someone who um, is really attuned to the spirit and has practices in their lives that help them to be attuned to the spirit. Um, and they understand that they are not really the spiritual director. The spiritual director is an oxymoron, <laughs> that the Holy Spirit is the director and that the spiritual director is just someone who's practiced at listening and um, helping someone to see and hear those invitations clearly and um, help them to say yes and support them in saying yes to the risky invitations of God. Um, so that's, that's how I discuss it. Um, I also talk about the fact that spiritual directors are often and, and should be people who have had a lot of a variety of experience with spiritual discipline and spiritual practice so that when um, 
a directee is coming with certain needs or questions or longings or whatever, they have a wide variety of disciplines that, that at their disposal mm-hmm. to teach and to guide. And so I was really grateful that my spiritual director knew how to practice solitude and silence and knew to offer it to me at the right moment when I was ready. And I think that's such an important role of a spiritual director is to offer up possibilities for spiritual practices out of their own experience um, as a director D is ready. Um, so it's, you know, Thomas Merton's got a beautiful definition that has to do with, um, you know, I think um, helping someone to see the grace of God in their lives mm-hmm. and, and helping them to say yes to God. Um, I think those are all the ways that I talk about it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like in the Transforming Center? Yeah. How much direction do you do these days? Um, I'm not like? doing any one-on-one direction right now. Mm. Um, the Transforming Center is, and being at the helm of that right now is um, it's a very big undertaking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the thing that's interesting is that I experience myself to be primarily, first and foremost, a spiritual director in any room I'm yeah. in. So when I'm leading our retreats, I'm always in the mode of spiritual direction, listening to the, what the Holy Spirit's doing, trying to follow the moving of the Spirit in the room. And then when people ask questions, I will often, you know, I'll ask them sometimes if it's okay with them, if, if it's okay if I do a little bit of spiritual direction with them, because what they're offering and presenting is so clearly a spiritual direction issue. And we create a really safe space, and usually people will say, yeah, that's fine, and then there we go. Um, so... Um, I'm not doing one-on-one, but I also, we, we practice group spiritual direction as our way of being together in small groups, and that's very countercultural, very different than what people are used to in terms of how to be together with other people. Mm-hmm. And so I, t- I teach and facilitate that in a step-by-step mm-hmm. way. And in the beginning, because um, Rosemary Doherty was my mentor, I mean, yeah. I can't even believe I'm saying it, but yeah. she was. In my, when I did uh, my training in spiritual direction at the Shalem Institute, and I also did my training in group spiritual direction, and she was my mentor in that mm-hmm. training. And um, so early in the Transforming Center's existence, we, we offer a two-year community experience, 27 months, um, where we people come for quarterly retreats, um, and um, they make a covenant commitment to each other, and the group stays the same throughout the 27 months. And so we have group spiritual direction, and you're with the same group for the whole time through. And we teach group spiritual direction. And in the beginning, our communities were small enough that we had a trained facilitator with each group. Um, And that didn't last very long because we grew, and then I didn't have enough trained facilitators to be able to place one in every group because the groups are five people each, and now we have like 100 people in each of our communities. And so um, I realized I was going to have to come up with a different way Mm. of helping these groups hold the structure of group spiritual Mm. direction. So now... Um, I actually teach and train the group in group spiritual direction, and I do it in a step-by-step way where um, each time we're together and they practice group spiritual direction, I let them try one new thing. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, we don't even let them talk to each other. <laughs> I tell them, I say, you guys aren't ready to even talk to each other. So, um, wow. so they are, you know, I give them real clear guidance about having the other the person present, there to be silent, what they're going to do in their silence, um, what they offer to the person through body language, but they're not going to say words. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, and so in a very step-by-step way, I teach the groups how to do group spiritual direction layer on layer, brick Mm -hmm. on brick, until they're finally, by the seventh retreat, they're doing full-out group spiritual discernment. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you're saying that you've set it up so that all the the instincts 
that it doesn't have to be evangelical mm-hmm. Protestant, that, that Americans are finely tuned to accomplish. You've set it up to s- disrupt that yes. <laughs> so that they have to surrender mm-hmm. to presence, it sounds yes. like. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. And, and honestly, we laugh and it's funny, but it's, I, we also set it up to make it safe so we can protect uh, them from each go. other. I mean, protect <clears throat> us all from the things we normally do in our human interactions that are so violating. You know, like fixing and advice giving and rushing mm-hmm. in with our own stories and, um, you know, applying scripture to somebody else's life and interpreting it for them. I mean, all the things we do that do violence to the soul, um, in the early stages of teaching group spiritual direction, I don't allow them any room to do violence to wow. each other when we're sharing at such a soulful level. Mm-hmm. And you know what is so wonderful? They come back from that first experience where we don't even let them say anything to each other. Mm-hmm. And the people who shared talked about how safe they felt um, and protected because they knew that no one was going to rush in mm-hmm. in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And then the people who were receiving the story and accompanying said how free they felt because they didn't have to come up with anything to say. <laughs> I yeah. mean, and they, the, mm-hmm. they, they love it mm-hmm. that night when all they do is give silent presence to the person and do not do any accompaniment yeah. through words. So yeah. it's, it's, I always love that moment when they come back and I'll, we'll debrief it a little bit and they'll talk about how wonderful and how reverenced they feel mm-hmm. they felt in sharing their story but not having anybody rush in with words. And um, you have to work a little bit with the feeling of um, vulnerability and a little bit of isolation because we're not used to sharing something and not having anybody rush right. in and say something right. comforting, like, I know exactly how you feel or the mm-hmm. same thing happened to me back then. So, and, I, and I tell them as I set them up to go into these times, um, receive the silence as a reverence for your story that the silence means that we're being reverent with your story, so reverent that we're not going to rush in with our own words. So if you can reframe that, and and we do, then they can receive the silence not as threatening, Mm -hmm. not as people leaving me standing out there alone naked, um, but rather that they're experiencing it as reverence Mm -hmm. um, for their story and safety because no one's going to rush in and do a lot of the human things we typically do. Mm -hmm. So it's really a fun it's really a fun moment. So, um, so the spiritual director part of me is always on high alert and yeah. it's always present when yeah. I speak or facilitate retreat. And tomorrow at Calvin, I'm going to talk about a little bit about the way that I work with our worship services because I'm an odd combination of spiritual director and liturgist when I plan our worship services because I'm always asking the question, what does the soul need right now? Mm-hmm. Um, in this moment on this retreat, at this time of the mm-hmm. day on this retreat, what does the soul need now? And that's my question. Out of that, we plan worship. Um, and it's an, odd, it's an odd combination, but it has um, been really uh, satisfying to mm-hmm. me. We, we practice fixed-hour prayer in the Transforming Center, so we pray eight times when we're together for two and a half days, little 15 to 20-minute fixed-hour prayer services. And... Um, they're, you know, all carefully planned around the themes of the retreat and also because it's fixed hour around the, the hour of the day. And so um, it's provided the structure for our retreats in, in large measure. And um, it's, a, it's a surprise. It's part of the surprise of my vocational mm-hmm. life is that I've ended up planning liturgies, mm-hmm. you know, from a spiritual direction place. Mm-hmm. So it's an odd thing, but it's very satisfying and surprising. You have often sat in a worship service <clears throat> wondering if I was planning worship services again, how I'd do it differently. It's mm-hmm. been five years since I <clears throat> left a very public role. Mm-hmm. I was leading four worship services a week oh, yeah. with uh, about 40 college students. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
what would I do differently? And I started to imagine that. I'm like, oh, no, not doing that. I'm not going back there. Put the guitar away. Um, and I think uh, that there's, there's so much to say, though. What I hear you saying is that the instincts, and we do have here a, com- a spiritual companioning program mm-hmm. and then also a direction mm-hmm. practicum. And some people go through both and don't end up two chairs and a candle with a formal mm-hmm. um, paradigm of what we think direction is. But it becomes an instinct mm-hmm. for lots of other things. And actually, what's difficult for me is I come back to engage. I was on staff at a Reformed church in the north side of Holland for a couple of years. And I would talk about the definition of direction. I would just say it's this listening to the voice of God. Mm-hmm. This is, in many ways, what I would think of as Christianity 101. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really respect, on one hand, you're saying if you're going to be trained to practice yeah. spiritual direction, we need to be really discerning about if you're ready for that. Mm-hmm. On the other side, the tension of that, I just want to say, yeah. this is really a gift that's from the church, for the church. Mm-hmm. And if you're coming to direction, or if you've come to faith, you've engaged some kind of holy, sacred, listening conversation at some level that brought you here. If I'm going to be spiritual directed, it says I'm going to sit with you for 50, 60 minutes. I've spent the time to do the training, but, but this is just a normal thing we do. So, it's, so I think that for those that go through the practicum that don't end up practicing, it's just like, oh, faith is transformative. Mm-hmm. I might not be that kind of a practitioner. So even if you're, you're here and you're not practicing direction as a director or a directee and this is new to you, the under, underneath this is this question of transformation. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that you bring, and that's, I guess, why, why you yeah. pick Transforming Center. Uh, it is, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a triple entendre, by the way. Okay. Yeah, you want to hear that? Please. Yeah. So first of all, Transforming Center refers to the Transforming Center of my own life, mm-hmm. you know, that it, from the inside out, that inner journey out into the outward. So my own transforming center, my own soul, um, and my intentionality with that. And then um, the transforming center of any church or ministry organization, um, a call. We, we, we are a ministry organization that works with pastors and leaders and influencers in their own ongoing process of formation, believing that whatever is broken or um, dysfunctional at the center of a church or an organization is going to find its way to all the edges of that yeah. church or organization. There's no way to hide it, no way to keep that from hap- happening. But on the other hand, whatever is transforming and good and healthy and whole and functional um, in the leadership center, that will also radiate out and ripple out. So the transforming center of a church or an organization is going to be the leadership of that that uh, church or organization. So that's a transforming center that um, has a ripple effect within that community. And then finally, um, you know, the, still the vision, the possibility that God might... Um, give us, a, you know, an actual retreat environment at some point. You know, right now we have nice office spaces, but um, we don't have our own center. But yeah. that that name has that dream in it that maybe mm. God might do that someday. This might be a time where we can transition to a little break. But before we rush out the door, let's just pause and let's collect ourselves. When we come back after this break... I'll ask a few more questions, unpack some things, and then I'm going to turn to you. So let's just pause and go back to that place where Ruth was leading us to stillness with body. Let's pay attention to the things that are stirring in you. 
even if you're not going to get on the microphone. What matters to you right now? For why you're here? Just take mental notes of the words. Ruth invited us to identify a word that might prophetically carry us through for your contribution to this practice. Go back to that word. Or maybe there's another word that has been spoken or something that you were reminded of. Amen. So that's the end of the first two-thirds of our time with Ruth Haley Barton at the Dominican Center of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our next episode will be part two of this conversation with Ruth. It's full of further conversation that will be especially interesting to church and nonprofit leaders. I continue to offer the Invitation podcast with a sense of urgency. I practice as a spiritual director in and outside of a prison with urgency. And I urgently offer this conversation with Ruth to you in the spirit of the Apostle Paul's words. Sleeper, awake. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. There is a vacuum of leadership in our world today, especially leadership that is attentive to the voice of God, able to discern spirits so that we might live as the wise when the days are evil. Ruth Haley Barton, her writings, podcast, and Transforming Center will be of definite value to you in your journey towards this wisdom. So please take some time to visit transformingcenter.com. And of course, the Dominican Center here in Grand Rapids is also a rich resource for your spiritual formation. To learn more about the Dominican Center, please visit dominicancenter.com. I invite you to look specifically for the web pages on the Spirituality Center. There you will see the Dominican Sisters of Grand Rapids have a 34-acre property that not only serves as their residence and worship space, but is also a conference center and retreat facility as well. You can download at that website a PDF catalog that lists all of the classes and learning programs available from weekend retreats and workshops to two-year certifications in spiritual companioning or in spiritual direction. And if you've not visited invitationpodcast.org yet, please do have a look and subscribe to our newsletter so you can get updates of when new podcast episodes are available and when invitation classes and retreats are also made available. And as always, 
it is a true delight to serve you as a spiritual director through this podcast. I give thanks for how you are learning to trust this as a space and time to be with God. That is no small or easy thing that you and I are able to share here on this podcast sent out through the interwebs. I do not take this honor for granted. And please stay tuned as we prepare part two of our conversation with Ruth for our next episode. It should be released for you to access shortly. Until next time, know that the Lord has set the godly apart for himself. He's closer to you than you are to yourself. And he is extending an invitation to you to come closer and deeper into his love and life. Amen. Amen.